The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. What does President Trump's Supreme Court pick mean for business? Commodity giant Glencore's Washington risks start piling up and deciphering the slide of the Chinese yuan. These are the issues we're delving into on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Ben Kellerman, filling in for Jen Saba and Anthony Curry. President Donald Trump this week chose Brett Kavanaugh to replace retiring Judge Anthony Kennedy. Associate Editor Tom Berkeley joins me to discuss the business and finance implications. So, Tom, true to form, Trump dramatically unveiled his pick for the Supreme Court. He does have a flair for that, doesn't he? He, he sure does. Um, Kavanaugh, he's a Washington insider. You wrote earlier in the week that if he's confirmed, he'd be a gift to business. Well, by virtue of being a uh, an appellate judge in the District of Columbia Circuit, you review a lot of regulatory decisions, and that's really the you know a large body of what his rulings have been about. And in most of those cases, he has been quite eager and willing to uh, restrain the authority of regulatory agencies. So he ruled as part of a three-judge panel that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was unconstitutional because it put too much power in the hands of the director. Uh, that was later overturned by the full uh, D.C. Circuit, uh, but of course the election of uh, Donald Trump uh, brought a uh, different approach to the CFPB. Uh, Kavanaugh also issued a dissent objecting to the Obama administration's net neutrality, so the idea that Internet services providers could not privilege certain content over other content. That's since been wiped away because the FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, under, under Donald Trump's FCC chairman, has uh, abolished that in December. But, you know, clearly he is, Kavanaugh is very much part of the deregulatory spirit of this administration. You know, and on other areas, he's really tried to rein in the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, saying it needs to really consider more carefully the costs of its uh, regulatory measures. And that has implications for a whole range of industrial companies, utilities, uh, you know, mining companies and the like. So really, this is a, a um, you know, a court pick that has um, a very uh, constrained view of what regulatory agencies should be doing to try to um, either restrain or impose burdens on American business. So his judicial record has clearly been one of deregulation. What role do you think that'll play in confirmation hearings, given all of these other questions about how he views executive power? Well, these issues will certainly come up. And look, we have a, a Senate that is uh, has a very narrow uh, Republican majority, 51 to 49. Uh, one of those 51, Senator John McCain, is receiving um, treatment for brain cancer and does not attend the Senate these days, and it's not clear that he would ever be present to vote. So uh, in theory, if the Democrats can peel away one voter, you know, one Republican senator, they could block this nomination. Uh, that's pretty hard to do. Uh, he's already been courting in his, uh, you know, appearance with Trump the other night. Um, he spoke about uh, his mother and his support of uh, women and hiring women clerks. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, which seemed to be a, a clear overture to Senator Collins in Maine and Senator Murkowski of Alaska, who the, the two Republican senators who have said that we're in favor of abortion rights and have set that out as kind of a marker. I guess the other issue that's really going to come up is uh, Kavanaugh's view about the expansive view about presidential power. Here's a man with a, a political as well as a judicial record. 
he actually worked for Kenneth Starr, the special prosecutor who investigated Bill Clinton in the 90s. And at that time, he said that, uh, you know, the president could be indicted and, you know, you know, could be could be prosecuted uh, for lying to the American people. Uh, curiously, uh, in a Minnesota Law Review article in 2009, he said that was really all a mistake and that uh, such prosecutions really threatened to burden a president, even even forcing him to testify could be, a, preparing for that could be an unfair burden. Right. So I, here you have a president who's currently being investigated by a, uh, by a special counsel, and it's quite conceivable that there could be a attempt to get him to testify. There could be a challenge brought to the Supreme Court, and you have someone who has been uh, nominated by Donald Trump potentially could be sitting in judgment on Donald Trump himself. And the Democrats will be playing this issue and questioning him pretty hardly on that topic, I think. These are going to be quite contentious, uh, but the way things stand, uh, if Republicans can hold their ranks in the Senate, Brett Kavanaugh will be sitting on the Supreme Court come, I don't know, November, December? And for generations to come. <laughs> well, certainly it's a, it's a job for life, uh, which is a curious part of the, uh, the U.S. Constitution. And uh, so he will certainly be there for years and years to come. Thanks, Tom. We'll certainly be keeping our eyes and ears on this over the coming days. Now let's hand over to our colleagues in Asia. Thank you, New York. Um, so I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong, and I'm talking remotely with Clara Ferreira Marquez um, in Singapore. And we're going to chat about Glencore, the Swiss commodities and trading giant. Um, it's fallen sharply in London market after the U.S. Department of Justice asked for documents and other records prove it's in compliance with Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and money laundering statutes in Nigeria, Congo, and Venezuela from 2007 to the present. Uh, Clara, shareholders are really spooked. What's going on? Well, it's been a difficult 2018 for, for Glencore. So if you think about where they were coming from, they came out of the sort of commodities bust and real near-death experience. They were carrying a lot of debt, and they came into 2018 in fantastic shape, a really good balance sheet and a portfolio of, of commodities that's sort of perfectly geared to the electric vehicle revolution. And on top of that, coal prices have been doing well. Um, instead of that, though, they've really had a series of, of vicissitudes, of which the latest is, is this subpoena from the Department of Justice. And... You know, in part, it's Glencore really has had more appetite for risk than many of the more traditional mining companies, in part because of its ownership structure. Its executives own very significant shares in the company. Um, now, of course, the tougher side of that is is coming out. Right. So are investors more worried than they should be, or is this kind of should be priced in? Like, these guys are pretty risk on, you say. You know, how, how bad could it get from here? Well, that's a big question. So let's look at what's actually happened. So what's happened here is they've been asked for information. So it's not an investigation yet. They've been asked for information by the Department of Justice. Obviously, it's a very long period of time in pretty complicated countries, including the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where, uh, which really is very important to Glencore's growth plans, and in particular to its EV strategy, because they produce both copper and cobalt uh, in the DRC. So that's one one part of it. But then the background is really the various developments that suggest perhaps more problematic relations with Washington. And in particular, this is their decision to settle with um, Israeli billionaire Dan Gertler. Now, Dan Gertler is on a U.S. blacklist. Um, Glencore was supposed to pay him royalties, was unable to do so because he was on a blacklist. For a while, this was a, a sort of stalemate. And then eventually... 
he's threatened so much on the ground. He is such a important figure in Congolese mining, so influential that in the end, Glencore had to go round US sanctions, pay him in euros. Obviously, Glencore says that this was something they discussed with US Treasury and that the approach was was approved. <laughs> but of course, that's you know extremely challenging. And on the very same day that they settled with Gertler, uh, the US added 40 more of his companies to the blacklist. So that suggests you know perhaps complicated relations. Obviously, that's not the Department of Justice; that is the Treasury. But you know that it, it, um, it, it is generally worrying in terms of how bad could it get. Well, I mean, let's look at some of the past fines. So Telia was fined um, or settled rather, uh, paid a bribe fine of um, 965 million over its um, Uzbek case. And if we look at money laundering, this we have to go back. Probably the most significant case in 2012 when HSBC was fined 1.9 billion. Um, uh, for allowing itself to be uh, used to, to launder drug money. So, but it's more about, you know, obviously they can cushion that blow, they can pay that fine, but it's really about their ability to operate in some of the complex but most promising jurisdictions. Right. Well, it looks like they've already made one move to kind of cushion sentiment, at least, with a, a big share buyback, which is unusual for Glencore, as far as I can tell. It's not un unheard of. Um, but what was your take on, on that move? Well, it's interesting, you know, Glencore an M&A machine, and when you hand back your cash to shareholders, you're sort of saying, I can't find a better way to use this money. But uh, shareholders have been asking for it. You know, it has, it's a difficult environment which to buy things. Shareholders have been asking them to return cash. They're obviously also considering that their shares are, are undervalued. You know, typically Glencore's multiples are above the sector at the moment, they're below. And as you say, it's a rare move. I think it's only the second time that they've uh, they've, they've done a buyback. I don't think the you know the timing is obviously not um, coincidental, um, but it is interesting because I think it tells us that perhaps the environment is just too complicated at the moment um, to allow for any really major M and A. So better that that money goes back to shareholders. Well, certainly the wider market environment is not <laughs> supportive of a uh, positive sentiment. So, um, well, we'll see how it works out for them. Clara, thanks very much for talking to me. Thank you. Okay, and now we turn to Christopher Bador, our China columnist, who's going to talk to us a little bit about the recent movements in the renminbi versus the dollar. Chris, just give us a background about you know how this this sudden depreciation in the currency, occurring in the midst of all this trade war talk, and now the implementation, actual implementation of tariffs. You know how should we see this? Yeah. So, well, what's happened is if you look at the way that the UN has been moving its US dollar, was it about? six three somewhere around there in mid-april and earlier this month it went to closer to almost six seven around there almost so, touched it yeah so uh i mean it's been a pretty substantial slide in the currency um you know there's lots of talk that this is connected to the trade war even that it might be intentional um, and it's just kind of fed into this atmosphere of, of kind of mistrust that's surrounding the, the trade conflict. Um, and so I have no doubt that that'll continue. But I think that it, it also is explained by other factors as well. Now, we saw a decline in 2015, um, a, a sharp adjustment by the central bank kind of sent traders into a tizzy. And right. what came after that was a bunch of capital outflows and scrambled the, the monetary policy. Um, you know, China at that time was trying to keep interest rates low to stimulate investment. Are we likely to see a, a replay of that this time around? Well, 
No. Uh, if I had to guess, no, I don't think that we are. Uh, so what happened in that episode was the PBOC led a one-off devaluation in August of that year. It took everybody by surprise. And what happened was that it kind of fed these expectations that the UN might sink further. So if you think that the UN is going to sink further and you're a company or you're a household, perhaps your best bet is to try to kind of move at least some of your money into the U.S. dollar. And so that just kind of fed this cycle where you had capital outflows. I mean, at some point stopping like $100 billion per month-ish. And so that just puts more downward pressure on the currency. And what the PBOC essentially did was tighten capital controls um, to prevent money from leaving the country country and that more or less worked i think we're we're in a, I mean, a lot just in their own, i mean a lot of a lot of a lot of shorters you know went after the renminbi then yes um, kyle bass uh you know some other big names you know were just saying like this they're gonna they they can't support the currency this time around and a lot of them lost their shirts um this time around the, the chinese government is kind of warning people you know not to freak out and also you know it's it's kind of reached its natural level if you look at it in the context of other currencies, of course, it's just it's declined along in, in line with other Asian currencies. You know, in general, there's a rush into dollars. That said, some people have suggested this is be, going to be used as a weapon in the trade war, um, that it could be used to soften the impact of, of, of tariffs applied to Chinese goods by simply making them cheaper in, in, in currency terms. Mm-hmm. Um, do you buy any aspect of that? Is that is that I mean, I think there's a there's a theoretical case for it. Um, I think it might be better explained by other factors. So, I mean, you look at kind of the start of when it began depreciating in April. That was about when we saw some pretty unambiguous data that the economy was starting to slow. And so, if the economy, if you think that the economy is going to slow, um, maybe you think that there's going to be some sort of monetary easing, or at least that they're going to kind of maybe let up a little bit on this attempt to really cut down on leverage and so forth. And so that might explain part of it. Um, whether there's an intentional uh, aspect from policymakers in Beijing to devalue the currency, obviously it's it's really hard to say. But you do get these kind of reports that they instructed state banks to try to cushion the blow. And uh, so that doesn't really comport with. Well, and they held they held their guidance rates flat, right? The rec, the the Fed hiked, and and they they stayed steady. Yes. And a lot of people are seeing that as kind of a reaction explicitly to the the trade war, because I mean, you know, there's a lot of moving parts here. There's the 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 move against financial risk and deleveraging, and that's changed the way the that asset prices have performed, obviously, and it impacts the currency to a certain extent. But you look at it, you know, and there really was kind of a very sharp move recently. Um, I would, you know, it does seem a reaction to to that, at least in part. I would, I would agree with that, but I think that, and this gets into maybe academic distinctions about <laughs> reading that PBOC's mind. But I mean, did they not follow the Fed because um, because they're worried about this trade conflict, or did they not follow the Fed because they see the outlook for the economy and it's exacerbated by the trade conflict, and so we want to ease monetary policy? Again, academic debate, but whatever it was. Uh, they didn't do something that they had been doing before, and that's going to have an impact. All right. Well, thanks so much. We'll keep following it. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Tom Berkeley, Clara Ferreira Marquez, Chris Bedore, and Pete Sweeney. And hats off to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And many thanks to you for listening. Please subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. Check out our columns at breakingviews.com. 
and we look forward to having you join us for another edition next week.